Well, how many of you uh, like dogs? Let me see. See, I feel like this should be unanimous, but how many of you like dogs? Yes? How many of you have dogs? Some went down, more went up. <laughs> now that's interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> Did not think about that. Okay. Uh, well, we have a sweet little English bulldog named Tonks. Um, yeah. Yeah. And with all disrespect to your dogs, <laughs> Tonks is the greatest dog ever. <laughs> Tonks has a smushy face. Um, she is very, very quirky. Uh, <laughs> she almost acts like a cat where she just climbs up on sides of things. And you're like, how did you get up there? Um, and she likes to also step on your lap as you're sitting down and then jump on your face. Um, all with so much love. So it's like overwhelming, but also really awesome. Um, so we love Tonks. We love our dog. Um, however, some, when we have to leave the house, we have to put Tonks uh, in her, her cage, uh, just since she was growing up, kind of crate training her. Um, and um, we've been every now and then starting to feel a little, you know, empathy for Tonks while we're gone for like a long day. We're like, all right, we're gonna be gone for like six hours. Let's let her roam the house. Uh, and so the first time we realized that was a bad idea. But then we're like, okay, so let's close the doors and everything and just let her have all of, all of the open space. And so we're like, now she'll be fine. But what happens is uh, she does what many dogs do. She throws a temper tantrum and she'll jump up. Again, I don't know how she's got this mad ups for this chunky little beast. Um, she'll jump up onto counters, onto benches, and she'll chew up our, our masks. She'll chew up your shoes. Um, whole baskets <laughs> have just been shredded all over our floor. Pillows, you're going... Stop! <laughs> and so when you come in the house, uh, instead of seeing, you know, that, that sheer joy that dogs have when their owners come in the house, and they're like, ah, this, is, this is amazing, I love you, like, I'm living my best life, let me lick your toes and in your face, <laughs> and you're like, stop, right? This is, this is what you expect, but when we come home and we, see, we, we walk in the door and there's just trash littered everywhere or whatnot uh, because of the dog, what we see is not that joy and jubilee. Tonks is much like this bulldog. Um, this is not Tonks, but very close, looking like Tonks. <laughs> you like how she, the bulldog's just like peering around the corner like... But, <laughs> but this is the look we get. We get this look of, of um, I know I've done something wrong. I, I, I know I've, I've been caught. Um, and so... This is, this is the classic look when your dog's in trouble. It's, it's, it's head down, ears back, eyes droopy, almost frowning. It's the, it's the look of being caught. And so, yeah, here's a, here's a couple more images of, of dogs that are, are, are having this look. What is this look called? Puppy dog eyes, yes. What's the, what's the emotion this dog is exhibiting? Shame. Shame. Just shame over what they've done. There's, there's a whole industry of people like posting their dog shaming photos, which didn't do. That's why I pulled another, another dog. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do this as a sermon illustration, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's this look of feeling shame. What else do you see in these images? What, what, other, images, what other emotions are conjured up? I heard guilt. Fear. Fear. Researchers have said that dogs actually don't feel shame. It looks like shame. 
but it's actually fear. It's fear of being caught. It's fear of punishment. It's fear of not being wanted. How many of you can relate to these dogs? Like that inner, inner self is just riddled with shame and fear. Today we're going to be talking about Jesus and shame. And we're going to look at this in four ways. We're going to look at with um, probably the most sophisticated questions I could come up with. Um, what the what? <laughs> what's wrong? What's right? And what's not? Uh, so what the what? What's right? Uh, wrong? What's right? And what's not? Um, so what the what? Yes, the... <laughs> The question that will unlock the mysteries of life. <laughs> this, is the, this is a deep philosophical question. What the, no, it's not that. This is the question you ask when you've been caught off guard, when you are so surprised that you don't even know what to ask. You're like, what the, what? <laughs> I don't even know what's happening here. Uh, you're, you're just so shocked that you don't even know how to even move forward. And so I just want to say today, we're going to, I have this unenviable task of preaching to you a passage from the Bible that may not be from the Bible. What the what? <laughs> how, how do you do that? If you guys look in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, there should be a little asterisk right before this section that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. Um, also, none of the early church leaders quoted this passage. They just went straight from the Feast of Tabernacles to verse 12. Also, the verses and chapters were something that were added much, much later, right? And so it was just a seamless transition. So then what, you go, what is happening here? The, also, the writing style doesn't even sound like John, as others have looked at, going, well, then why is this added to our Bibles? And I just want to say, don't worry if you're freaking out right now. There's actually many true stories that happened in, script, in the life of Jesus that weren't even recorded in our Bibles, right? Like, there's many things that happened that we're just not told about. In fact, John spells that out for us explicitly in, later in this, in this book, in verse, chapter 21, verse 25. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. <laughs> and so I just love that verse. It just feels very freeing. Like, there's a lot we don't know about Jesus. We just have what we have right here. We just have what the Holy Spirit has brought to us here. Now, have you ever wondered the question, you know, how did we get our Bible? How do we get this thing? Like, um, why are there so many translations? Like, hmm. Well, let me, let me geek out with you for a second. Um, this book is actually a collection of 66 books. It has, it has 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Its original languages were, were Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so you're going, okay, so how do we get that? And so let me, let me just, heads up, it was not written on a computer, stored in the cloud somewhere, so we could just go look at our, our Google Doc and go, oh, that's what it was said there. Thankfully, we can do that now. We can go to our Bible apps and just go look it up. But then it was a manuscript, and that word literally means handwritten. It was handwritten with their hands. I know, that's wild, right? <laughs> they actually used hands, right? That this is what's happening. They, they wrote these, the, this 
Bible out with their hands on, on sometimes on papyrus, on, on, the, on some type of parchment, and then passed it along. And then there was copies made from that, right? And so there's a whole field of study around this called textual criticism, and we're not going to get too deep into that. But a couple main big points for textual criticism is asking, you know, the questions of how can we trust what we have was actually God's word? You know, what, what, what are some markers that tell us that these, this is actually historically, historically true, right? And so some of those big things are things like date, right? Um, the main rules would be things like date, when it was copied. And so the earlier, the better, you know, the early, closest to the actual thing that event happened, the better. You know, the earliest copy that we have of the Bible is a, is a little document, a little parchment called P52, and it's actually from the Gospel of John, and it is dated around 125 AD. Not long after John wrote Revelation, right? So that you're, you're talking about a, a, a time period. You're talking about a time period where you can actually go back and ask the authors after, you, after you've read something, you're like, did that really happen? So there, there's actually some, the closer the better, and that, that small period of time, that, that lapse there is phenomenal when you compare it to other works. Another thing you want to look at is quantity. How many copies do we have? And the, the rule is the more copies, the better. Why? Because then you can compare and contrast them with one another. You, know, you can see why did this text say this and why does this text say that, right? And so what we have in the Greek New Testament there are 5,000 copies, 5,000 copies, which is an embarrassment of riches for us to compare and contrast, to go like, why does it say it this way versus this way? And what you see when you read the 5,000 copies is there's an immense, immense amount of unity amongst the copies. They're very, 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 very similar, right? But another thing that you need to use besides date and quantity is quality. And so what... what how do you decide that? Well, because they are handwritten, you just can't get around the fact that there's going to be some errors. So there's going to be some misspelled words. There's going to be times when a scribe copying from the original skipped a line. You do, you do that when you're reading a book, you're like, oh, I just skipped a line, right? If that happens, here's the good news. They had, they had a chief scribe overseeing these things and wrote in the margins, you know, misspelled this, do this. Many times, though, the chief scribe would just tear that sheet out and make them start over again. It's like a teacher, right? <laughs> Dang it. So th- this, I want us to see how reliable this thing actually is. It, there's a really high bar that we have here. And these, these, are, these are being copied by the, these scribes who are very perfectionist. They, they, they care so much about it being perfect that they would just throw it away if it, was, if it wasn't right. Now, then that text had to be translated into other languages, right? And so it goes from the, you know, the Hebrew and the Greek and into Latin. And then we go from the Latin and then we go, we go from the Hebrew and the Greek into English and, and Spanish and, and, and so forth, right? And so there's, that's when the translations happen. Now, that brings the question, though. How, why are there so many translations? Like, I get in different languages, but why so many even in one language? Well, here's something that I learned uh, in seminary, and I'm going to let you repeat it back with me because I think it's really helpful, is that all translations are an interpretation. Can we all say that with me? All translations are an interpretation, right? It, it's really helpful. And so uh, as you start to read different translations, you can read King James and you know, all the vows and the these. That's, that's one way of interpreting that, right? Um, and then you can read other translations. But if every translation is an interpretation, I want us to see that sometimes the way you translate one word 
can have big theological implications for how you understand what you're about to read. Do I think all translations are equal? No. Um, but do I think from most of, I think almost all the translations that we have here, you can go like 99% of it is, is right. I'd say yes, absolutely. Like you go, there's a, lot, there's a lot right there. There's also, they chose that word, and I don't know if I'm able to argue against that word, right? And so you, you, you just have to, all trans- translations are interpretations. All right. Um, but the reason I'm saying all this is to build us up to then why we preach in a passage that may or may not be from the Bible. Well, there is a unanimous consensus amongst the scholars that this passage was not actually in the original manuscript. As we said, it doesn't even sound like John. It's probably Luke who wrote this. Even though there is a unanimous opinion that this is not original, there's also almost a unanimous opinion that this is actually a real event that happened. That Jesus actually did this, and no one wanted to lose this beautiful story that we have before us. No one wanted to miss out on this. And so here's why we're preaching to you this morning. It sounds like the character of God. You have have all of the later manuscripts are, are quoting from it. And as you test it against the rest of the Bible, you can go, there's nothing, there's nothing um, heretical about this, right? And so that's, that's, that's why we're doing this this morning, okay? I had to clear the runway before we jumped into the, the sermon here, okay? All right, so what's wrong? Well, a lot. <laughs> what is wrong with this passage? A lot is wrong with this passage in terms of what's happening there. Verse 3, look at verse 3 with me. The teachers of the law... And the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And it says, a woman caught in adultery. And so what it's implying there is that she was set up. She was caught. There was, there was actually entrapment. That this was a sting. They, they wanted to catch her. And so what, but I, what else is wrong with this then? How, how many people do you need for adultery to happen? <laughs> where's the dude, right? Where, where, where's the guy in this section? But, but in that society, just like today, there's a double standard for women, right? And so today, we might call it the walk of shame. But for, for men, I mean, we just, we just applaud their... their a man's experience. But for women, we, we'll just use shameful and hurtful words. And I, we're not going to come up with those words right here because some of you guys may have been called that before. And I just want us to see, like, what's wrong with this passage here is you have a group of men coming to Jesus ready to stone a woman whom they set up and the dude goes free. There's no repercussions for him. And this is, what I, this is why I actually don't like the subtitle for this passage that's in your Bible. The subtitles were added later, much later as well. Usually in our Bibles, the subtitle for this passage is A Woman Caught in Adultery. Is that what yours says? Is it a woman caught in adultery or is it men caught in hypocrisy? <laughs> that's what the passage is about. Men caught in hypocrisy. Now, now, stoning someone for adultery seems kind of barbaic, right? But I, and I, I get that, that that's, that's very severe. But I also want you to, see, to, to know that in this culture, that, that yes, that's severe. But the requirements to actually go forth with that execution is actually very gracious and very generous. 
Because here's what, here's what would have, have to happen. To prove that someone actually uh, has done this act of adultery, you couldn't just say, I heard that they were together. You had actually had to have seen it. Now, I'm not just saying you'd have had to have seen them walk out of the motel together. I'm not saying that if you saw them lying in bed. It says you have to have actually seen them in the act. Yikes, right? (laughs) Big yikes. This is why we think this was entrapment. Someone knew they would be doing this and caught them in the act, and the dude runs scot-free. There is something wrong that's happening here, and it's revealing their true intentions. They don't care about justice or this woman or, or whomever. Their sole purpose here is to trap Jesus. If Jesus were to say, yeah, you should probably murder her for this, well, then they know that the Roman guards would have said, you, you have no permission to do that and gotten in trouble there. But if the, he said, don't murder her, then it would look like Jesus is relaxing God's law. They're putting him in, in a no-win situation. It's the perfect trap that he can't answer the question. And so what's wrong with this passage? Almost everything. Um, what's right? Jesus' response. Oh, Jesus' response is beautiful. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And so they're like, we asked you the unanswerable question. You will never be able to respond to this. We're going to blow him away. Ask the question. And they ask it, and Jesus goes, La, la, la. <laughs> I just got to imagine the, the people there are like, I don't think he heard you. Ask it again. Ask it again. <laughs> All right, so who would you do? Would you stone or die? <laughs> and Jesus just continues to, to write in the dirt. Now, everyone wants to know, what did he write in the dirt? Was it him quoting from Old Testament passages? Was he writing their names down right then? Ooh, <laughs> No one knows what he's writing in the dirt. In fact, the verb there, to write, can also mean draw. Again, all translations are interpretation. So Jesus could as easily been drawing a giraffe on the ground. (laughs) Just like annoyed with these guys. (laughs) He could have just been drawing an animal's, his his giant picture, because he's just so annoyed, because he knows what their true intentions are here. He knows they're trying to trap him. And so how does Jesus solve this problem? He solves it with his character. Verse 7 and 8. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. So it had to be a while before he stopped his drawing. He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> Let me go back to what I was doing here. <laughs> he just he doesn't care about them right now. He's like, I got some, some, a masterpiece going on down here. Like, Jesus is just brilliant in this moment, right? It's a no-win situation for Jesus, but how does he get through it? It's through his humility and his meekness. It's his character. Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And in that culture, going back to, yes, they had to see the act happen to, to accuse, but in that culture, if you were the one to, to, to bring the accusation, if you were the witness, then you also had to be the one to throw the stone, the first stone. And so not only are you a, a, a witness in the court case, you're also the executioner. And so you had to be really, really certain of what you saw if you're going to be willing to kill someone with a stone. 
And so let me just say this. Jesus is not saying only if you're sinless can you ever cast judgment or, or have punishment doled out. Otherwise, no one could ever serve on jury duty, right? Like none of us would ever be able to do that. No, no judge could ever sit in his seat, right? Because we're all, sin, we're all sinful. And so he's not saying you have to be sinless to cast judgment here. You know, what he's saying is that you can't be an adulterer yourself and stoning someone for adultery. You can't, you can't do both here. And so Jesus says, go pick a rock. Go pick a rock if that's who you are. And what happens? They all leave. They all leave. I think many, many times we feel like we're the only ones that struggle with this sin. They all leave. (laughs) You are not alone in your struggle. From the oldest to the youngest is how they leave. They know it. They know their sin. And they start to leave. No one throws a stone because everyone was guilty. And so, I mean, this is just the brilliance of what Jesus does. He does both. He, he upholds both the seriousness of God's law, but he also is able to, to show just immense compassion on this woman in the same moment. Do you see how he does both in that moment? He sees right through what they're doing, and he sees that the, they are just the embodiment of hypocrisy. And the nature of hypocrisy is to see others' sins more clearly than your own. Is I can see your sins so clear, but I have, I'm so blind to my own sin. I mean, we, we, we do this all the time. We all come up with our little mini rules, our little mini Ten Commandments, and we use those rules to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, to elevate ourselves, and then to look down on others. Um, th- there's this classic George Carlin joke. Um, if you know him, older comedian, he says, have you ever noticed that anybody driving slower than you is just an idiot? And anyone that drives faster than you is a maniac? <laughs> and so the way it works is you're, you're driving in I-35 and you just come up behind someone who's going 20, 20 miles below the speed limit. You're like, oh, look at this idiot. Come on, get off the road. And in the same second, someone speeds by you. Vroom! You're like, a maniac. Someone get him. <laughs> Call the police. But you're always driving the perfect speed. Isn't that right? (laughs) We always seem to know what other sins are more clearly than our own. We are all these hypocrites. We have all of these little rules that we can see your sin much better than ours. Uh, The classic example for me that I've I've experienced uh, of of these rules, uh, if someone breaks your rules, that that you're an idiot or a maniac, it, it comes around the law and rule of dishes. Everyone has their own way of doing dishes in their home. And if you have family over to your house or you go to someone else's house, that friction happens. You're like, oh gosh, that's the way you do dishes? Uh, And so we have little mini Ten Commandments around the way we do dishes. And if someone breaks that, thou shalt not do the dish the way I do it rule, you judge them wholeheartedly. So I'm not going to call out my in-laws. That would be very awkward. Um, <laughs> but there are some people out there, we'll, we'll say, uh, who, who see that when we are done with our plates, we like to put them on the side of the sink or in the sink for a time later to be determined uh, <laughs> to clean. <laughs> and, you know, people might look at me. You might be doing this at the exact same moment right now. You might be judging me going, oh, gross. 
How could you just let it sit there dirty? Like, why don't you just take care of it? It takes two seconds. I get it. I get it. I get, I've heard the arguments. It seems right, but I'm not going to do it. So, no, Sue, I will not clean my dish right now. Thank you very much. Um, I'll do it later in the day when it suits me. All right? Maybe it's not dishes for you. Maybe it's not dishes for you that you, you see other sins more clearly and yours less. Um, you know, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something like you're, you're going, oh, that's how you school your kids. Hmm. I thought you were better than that. <laughs> oh, you eat those? That, that type of food? Ooh. I guess we may not be able to hang out much anymore. Uh, <laughs> oh, time management's not really important to you. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I probably won't call you again. Um, it, we, we have all of these rules that we, we, we hold people to this high standard, and then we give ourselves so much grace on, right? We just give ourselves so much grace on because everyone else is a maniac or an idiot, but I'm not. And so I just want to say to us, God's law is not a tool of comparison. It is a mirror. We're supposed to use that that mirror to see our own sin, to to see it more clearly than anything else. That doesn't mean we don't, 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 um, when we see something wrong, we don't pass judgment. Again, we're not saying that. But first, we want to come to ourselves, Right? Because I think what, what's, what's wrong with this passage is that the Pharisees are so aware of this woman's sin and yet so blind to their own ugliness. What's right with this passage is all of Jesus. <laughs> and so our last question is, what's not? What's not said in this passage? And I want us to see this. Um, look at verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so I want you to see three things Jesus doesn't say in this passage. First, he doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, period. He doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you. That's grace without a call to change. Jesus is pleading for her to leave her life of sin. Go sin no more. Jesus has a, has a higher view of God's law and, 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 a, and a much clearer view of our own sin than we will ever will. And he cares so much about us. He says, don't brush those sins under the rug. They're killing you. They're eating you alive. Go sin no more. And so he... he and he says this all with, with such a gentle, because the Pharisees are coming, coming to her with just dripping with disdain, full of condemnation. And what Jesus does by his actions and by his words is he just creates this, this safe space of no condemnation and says, come into this circle of hope and no condemnation. And inside that circle, he's able to speak gently to her, words that she does need to hear to sin no more. And so I just want to say to us, Jesus can't forgive a slip-up. He doesn't just forgive accidents. You have to confess your sin. And so you have to say, here's my sin. I lay it at your feet. And that's what he forgives, not, ah, I just messed up again. It, you have to, we have to actually acknowledge it. He cares so much about that. Okay, so that's the first thing he doesn't say is just Neither do I condemn you. But the second thing I want to say is he doesn't just say sin no more. That's not all he's focused about. 
right? That's not the whole story. He says, neither do I condemn you. And I, oh, <laughs> they shamed you, and I'm covering you. They accused you, but I'm forgiving you. They excluded you, but I'm welcoming you. They treated you like those bad dogs, so that you felt all of that, that same fear and shame. But I'm telling you that perfect love casts out all fear. Come into that circle. Come into that circle because Jesus is where sinners can live. Jesus is where sinners can live. And if, if Jesus bears our condemnation and our sins are nailed to the cross, then I bear my sin no more. Do you believe that? That the sin is not nailed to you anymore. Jesus has taken it once and for all. Oh, I don't know where you're at this morning. You may be feeling much like this woman. Maybe you were caught. Maybe you were caught in sexual sin. And all your worst nightmares came true. Maybe, you're, maybe you haven't been caught yet. But you're so scared of getting caught. Maybe you're scheming. You're, you're planning to do something. Or maybe you're like the Pharisees who are just judging everyone. Wherever you're at this morning, all of those places are places of where people are saying, if someone knew the real me, they wouldn't love me. If someone saw who I am deep down inside, they would cast me out. There's no forgiveness for me. That is what is called shame. Shame is that feeling that you're an outcast, that you're weird, that you're so different. It's that feeling of being vulnerable, being exposed. It's that feeling of being naked. And if people saw you for who for you really are, they'd just reject you. And I just want to tell you this morning, don't believe those lies at all. Don't believe those lies at all. We, we, we quoted it earlier, Romans 8, 1, my, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And it has two of the most important words in the, and they're the two tiniest words in that passage. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think the two most important words in that passage are no and in. Because you hear what it's saying? It says, there is now no condemnation. Everyone say No condemnation. It says no. It doesn't say some condemnation. It doesn't say there is some condemnation. It says none. Zilch, nada. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you, can be, you can be covered and you can, you can find yourself lost in him as he covers himself around you. There is zero condemnation for you. Oh, I, don't know, I don't care where, you're, where you've been, where you're at, what you're doing, what you've done, what you're smoking, what you're drinking, or where the bodies are buried. There is forgiveness. There is true forgiveness here. And anytime you believe what God's word says about you, more than what your inner shame is saying about you, you're doing very valuable work. That God loves you so much and that there is no condemnation. And we keep wanting to doubt that. And so that's what faith in Christ is. And it's faith in believing that what Jesus has done for me is enough. And once I start believing that, oh, man, that, that's going to change things drastically. 
I mean, there's this great quote by a guy named Jack Miller. I love this. He says, cheer up. You're worse off than you think. <laughs> but in, in Christ, you're loved more than you ever can imagine. <laughs> I think you love that. He just holds two things in tension there. Like, cheer up. Your sin is a lot worse than you think. But at the same time, you're far more loved and cared for than you ever dared imagine. Like, both of these things, we have to hold both of these things together in tension. Because God is serious about sin, but he's, he's serious about grace too. He's very serious about grace. And so the third thing I want us to see here that Jesus does not say, he doesn't reverse the order of this. He doesn't say, go leave your life of sin and then I won't condemn you. He begins with neither do I condemn you and then he says, go sin no more or leave your life of sin. I want us to see this. Jesus gives the verdict before he, get, he commands the performance. Don't you see that? The verdict, he gives the per- verdict before the performance. Oh, I, love, I need to hear that. I hope you can hear that this morning. He says, neither do I condemn you, sin no more. He begins with neither do I condemn you. So wherever you're at this morning, he says, neither do I condemn you. And that's just true grace. Undeserved favor. I don't deserve it. And he says, I don't condemn you. And I think the problem for us is many of us are like the Pharisees and we want to reverse the order. We want to say, let me, let me get my act together and then maybe you'll love me. We want to reverse the order. We want, we want moral reformation, which is the change on the outside, before we get spiritual transformation, the change on the inside. And I would say, yes, changing our behavior is good. We need to change. But without a change of heart, we realize we're just going to be putting a Band-Aid on a fatal wound. We need the inner heart change to happen Moral reformation looks at the rules, but spiritual transformation looks at the ruler. What's your focus? Moral reformation bends the heart almost unwillingly, but spiritual transformation changes the heart and is, is, is joyful about this new change of life. Moral reformation has the deepest habits of the heart are just restrained, almost bursting to come out. But spiritual transformation, the deepest habits of the heart are changed. And so he, God changes your taste buds to want something different here. And so instead of using fear and pride to motivate you to change, and many churches are great at that. Fear and pride are great manipulators. Instead of using fear and pride to motivate change, in Christ, he, he kills the fear and he kills your pride. He kills that fear. And in that moment, you actually want to change. You actually want something different here. <laughs> and you, you actually get dissolved. The fear and the, 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 the pride dissolve away from you as you hear, neither do I condemn you. And I'm free. I can actually be free. And then it's in that place that we, we actually want to sin no more, that the Spirit enables us to actually fight those struggles. And so I want you to hear this morning, if you struggle with sexual sins, there is hope. There is hope and there is healing. And I want you to hear that you're not alone. That you are not alone. And when you see how he's loved you for years and years and years, even when you didn't get it, guess what? You can now love others who just don't get it. Because if you start to see how much Christ has loved you, even when you didn't get it, even when you didn't get it, 
then there's no way when someone comes to you and, and, and shares their sin to you, would you ever go, like, how dare you? Because when you see your own sin so clearly, then you look at someone else and you go like, I've been there before. Here's how, here's how hope and change came about. And so I want us to see, to put the mirror to our own hearts first and see where real hope and healing and transformation can happen. And then we're going to start giving it away to everyone else. <laughs> oh. what, 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 what is Christ saying you, to you today? Neither do I condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. Let me pray.